That is the sound you never want to hear. That is the sound of the warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. When you hear that sound, it means you are in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host of this podcast, and I do it because I was one mile from the nuclear reactor at Three Mile Island when the accident happened there in 1979. I don't want you or anyone you know or love going through what I went through, or possibly worse. Later in this podcast, I interview filmmaker Chris Nolan. No, not Christopher Nolan, who directed the new Batman film, but Chris Nolan, who found himself in Tokyo when the Fukushima tragedy began and ended up making a film about what was going on during the first six months. His interview provides invaluable historic information, as does the film. Today is Tuesday, July 17, 2012, one year, 128 days since the Fukushima tragedy began on March 11 of 2011, and here is the week's nuclear news. In Japan, in Tokyo, tens of thousands of people took to the streets on Monday, July 16, to demand a stop to nuclear power. It is the latest sign of the growing anti-nuclear sentiment among the Japanese population. Organizers said the number of participants was estimated at 170,000. The crowd included old-time activists, such as a large number of labor union members, consumer and other old-time activist groups. But in addition, there were fashion-conscious young people, parents with young children, artists and others who seemed least likely to join a political demonstration. This is the offshoot of demonstrations that began back in March with a mere 300 participants. They now will continue every week and are expected to continue to grow. Also in Japan, this outrageous news that KEPCO, the company that restarted the nuclear reactors at UI and operates them, on the same day that the UI nuclear plants got up to full power, they shut down eight thermal power plants that they also operated. As a result, the total power output in Japan decreased. The nuclear power plants provide less than one-third of the energy that was provided by the thermal power plants. And yet, KEPCO and the government are still warning of possible power shortages and blackouts if more nuclear reactors are not started. That is shameless manipulation. Here in the United States, a document leaked to Friends of the Earth from inside the San Onofre nuclear reactor reveals that the steam generator damage at San Onofre is the worst on record compared to similar replacement steam generators at other U.S. nuclear reactors. The unprecedented problems pose a serious safety threat to communities in Southern California should the reactors be restarted. According to nuclear expert Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Associates, if either reactor is allowed to restart before the problems are fully understood and fixed, we could face a domino-like failure of tubes that carry radioactive water, resulting in a significant release of radiation and a crisis for Southern California. In a related story, Fairwinds Associates announced that Southern California Edison has sent its San Onofre employees an email informing them that it is against company policy to leak documents to Fairwinds. Someone leaked the document to Fairwinds, which responded by posting it online. Dr. Vladimir Vertolecki, a physician, geneticist, and professor, 
In an interview he gave in the British medical journal Lancet in April of 2010, spoke about child development investigations in which he was involved. Specifically, Verdelicki pointed out two main lessons learned from Chernobyl that also have application to Fukushima Daiichi. It is not the scale of a nuclear accident itself that makes a human disaster, he said. It is the response by officials afterwards and the public panic produced. The public should not be treated as idiots and told only the good half of the story, as is often done by official agencies. People have the right to know, the need to believe those who are in charge. Verdelicki's investigations in Ukraine after Chernobyl show elevated population rates of certain types of birth defects, mostly of the brain and spinal cord, according to his 2010 article. However, the geneticist noted, statistics illuminate realities but cannot prove causes. He also spoke of the impact of the bombs from Hiroshima and Nagasaki and said that they produced external radiation, which is intense but short-lived. The impact of Chernobyl and, by extension, Fukushima Daiichi, is ongoing, and radiation still in the environment is inhaled or swallowed, leading to accumulation in the body. One mushroom eaten that has been grown in the affected areas may deliver as much radiation as hundreds of chest x-rays, he concluded. This accumulation is most worrisome for pregnant women. Radiation is an agent that can not only cause birth defects, but alter the human genome with long-term effects on future generations, he stated. Related to that, uh, I want to review for you the 2005 report from the National Academy of Sciences in Washington, D.C. They released an over 700-page report entitled The Beer 7, or The Seventh Biological Effects of Ionizing Radiation, BEIR report, on health risks from exposure to low levels of ionizing radiation. This report reconfirmed the previous knowledge that there is no safe level of exposure to radiation, that even very low doses can cause cancer. Risks from low-dose radiation are equal or greater than previously thought. Among the report's conclusions are, there is no safe level or threshold of ionizing radiation exposure. Even exposure to background radiation causes some cancers. Additional exposures cause additional risks. Radiation causes other health effects, such as heart disease and stroke and further study is needed to predict the doses that result in these non-cancer health effects. It is possible that children born to parents who have been exposed to radiation could be affected by those exposures. The linear no-threshold model for predicting health effects from radiation is retained, meaning that every exposure causes some risk and that risks are generally proportional to dose. So keeping that in mind, consider the following information. Last week, it was announced that California prunes and almonds have been found to have detectable levels of cesium-134 and 137. These are both a fingerprint for radiation released from Fukushima Daiichi. Both the prunes and the almonds were produced as part of the 2011 crop and were tested as of July of 2012. Why the delay? There is no word. The U.S. produces 80% of the world's crop of almonds and 60% of the world's crop of prunes. Also a reminder that in the weeks after Fukushima, California seaweed tested over 500% higher for radioactive iodine-131 than anywhere else in the U.S. 
This was just days after the catastrophe occurred, according to results published in the journal Environmental Science and Technology. Giant kelp revealed the presence of radioactive iodine-131 at levels 500% higher in Southern California than in any other area of the country. The highest levels of radioactive contamination from Fukushima occurred in Central and Southern California, with the worst of all being found in Southern California's Corona del Mar Beach, which is south of Los Angeles and north of San Diego. This was during a time when we were told that there was no radiation plume from Fukushima coming towards the United States. So when is a radiation plume not a radiation plume? When the officials say it isn't a plume. Silly. Meanwhile, this word of an outbreak of nuclear radiation sanity. The premier New York City seafood restaurant, Le Bernardin, now refuses all fish from Japan. In addition, it uses a Geiger counter on fish from other sources, making it the only restaurant in the country where it is safe to eat the seafood. Now on to our interview. Chris Nolan is a young American who was living in Tokyo on March 11, 2011, when the earthquake triggered the meltdown at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. Chris volunteered to help with relief efforts and recorded much of what he experienced with a small digital camera. Now that footage has been made into a documentary, 311 Surviving Japan. Nuclear Hot Seat recently spoke with Chris outside of a local Los Angeles coffee house. Christopher Nolan is a filmmaker and the director-producer of 311 Surviving Japan, a full-length documentary on the nuclear aftermath of the Tohoku earthquake and the beginnings of the Japanese people's resistance to their country's nuclear policy. Chris, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. So you were living in Japan when the earthquake happened. What was that like, and what was your response after that? Well, initially after the earthquake happened, um, my response was to pretty much stay in the apartment and stay safe. The next day, of course, the, um, when the nuclear power plant exploded and everything, I actually left. Um, my parents bought me a plane ticket to come back to America, and when I got back, my mom said to me, you know, you're in my kitchen physically, but mentally you're not really here. And I knew at that point I was still in the disaster. And I went back because I felt that I should go help the people. How long after you had come back to the States did you actually go back to Japan? I was just back for one week. Very brave of you. So you said you went back to help people. What sort of help were you providing? Um, at first I was just providing um, relief supplies. Um, and then I went actually up to the affected area. You went up to the Fukushima area? I didn't go to the Fukushima area first. I went up to the um, Iwate Prefecture um, to a town called Ofunado. Um, did a lot of debris cleaning and whatnot. Um, started to hear a lot of problems with the relief operations going on from the government. Um, and that kind of led me on a path to um, kind of investigate what was going on. What sort of problems were you hearing about? Food shortages and just systematic problems with getting you know, food around logistically and people were starving was the main thing. Um, nobody was getting any information about the nuclear power situation at all, um, especially up north. They considered it just to be a problem down south. They didn't think it affected them at all. 
So there was no information about radiation plume or the ongoing series of explosions and problems that were showing up at Fukushima? No. On television, they told us that there was an accident, and then they reverted to how the power plant worked before that. But they did not tell us how it would affect us health-wise at all. How suspicious were the Japanese people you were in contact with about this kind of information coming from the government? At first, they didn't seem very concerned about it. But as time went on, people got a lot more concerned. So how did this turn into a film? After I spent time up north, um, I, of course, wanted to know, you know, living there, what was going on with the radiation, how the extent and everything. The mayor of Minami Selman went onto YouTube. The government had told everyone to stay indoors, so no supplies, nothing was being delivered. And this was how long after the tsunami had taken place? That was right after the the nuclear accident that they were given that order. Um, So he actually had to go into YouTube to get help. Why YouTube? Because the mass media wasn't really reporting anything. After that, of course, the government showed up. You know, people got supplies and everything. Um, When I saw the clip on YouTube, though, I was like, I've got to... I just felt that I had to meet him. And in meeting him, what was that like, and how did that lead to you wanting to do a documentary? Upon meeting him, my first sense from the YouTube video that he was very more, like, kind of a little bit more going rogue, I guess. Um... But when I got there, it seemed like he kind of slipped back into, like, the official, you know, follow the government's orders type of thing and wanted people to come back to the town. And that made me want to, of course, know more. And basically, um, we were accompanied by um, a journalist from Estonia, and um, we went to Tokyo Electric Power. And when we interviewed um, Tokyo Electric Power... You actually got through to TEPCO in the weeks after Fukushima? Yeah, um, it was actually in May that we got to the TEPCO corporate office, and we were there for about an hour and 15 minutes, and um, they had their prepped interview, you know, of stuff that they wanted to tell us, and then um, the journalists let me loose on them, and I asked them all kinds of questions they were not ready for, Um, but the amazing thing was they still answered them. They didn't say no comment or anything, and I captured it all on film, and when I got that on film, I said, this is something that people need to know about. And from that point on, it just led me into making this film. Now, you speak some Japanese, do you not? A little, yes. And when you were asking the questions, were you doing so directly, or did you have to go through interpreters? It depended on who it was. Um, Tepco spoke English. so um, But like the mayor, we had to use interpreter. Yeah, it really depended on where you were. So my movie's kind of mixed in English and Japanese because of that. What are some of the standout moments that you experienced in these, the first few months after Fukushima happened when you're wandering around with, what, a little digital camera? Yeah, I just had a regular consumer camera. What stood out to me was the lady that was denied food and shelter because she was actually from another community, and they told her the shelter was full. So because she didn't register at the shelter, she also couldn't get the government assistance in food. So she was on her own for a good two and a half months. She wasn't even in a shelter. She was in the back of trucks. What really, really got to me was her openness about it and willing to actually get angry about it because it's very uncharacteristic for Japanese people to do that. How open were the Japanese officials that you faced to talking about the nuclear aspect of the disaster you were facing? 
the officials that we interviewed in Miyagi Prefecture did not want to talk about the radiation at all. They said that basically it was baseless, harmful rumors and everything was fine. That's almost a direct quote from them. And what was your knowledge or awareness of this at the time? At the time, I really didn't have a lot of concrete knowledge because I had the Western media saying a lot of things. I had the Japanese media saying nothing. We had the government and TEPCO telling us everything was fine. So really wasn't sure, but I, I knew that there was, there was something wrong. And what, if any, protective measures did you take for yourself and your health from the radiation during this time? At the time, we were not really given much instructions on what precautions that we could take, so I didn't really take any. Go in commando in Fukushima. Not a good idea, but Chris, you're still here, and we hope you're here for a good long time. So officials didn't want to speak about the issue. Where did you go for your next sets of information? After I talked to the officials in TEPCO, I went back to talking to the people. Because I wanted to see how the people felt, you know, after a few months. And the people basically were pissed. They said basically the same thing. They were not getting, you couldn't trust the information from anybody. And they didn't know what to believe. But they didn't know what to do about it. So a lot of people started to kind of start to speak out about it. How common is this in the Japanese culture? Not common at all. You're not supposed to stand up or speak against anything. They have a saying that um, the nail on the floor is the one that gets hammered down. So you're not supposed to cause a commotion. Don't stick your head up. Right. So here are these people getting pissed off, to use your language, and sticking their heads up. What was it that you were hearing from them? They were very angry with the government and their lack of releasing information to them. That was the chief complaint from everybody. So where did that lead you in this uh, inadvertent adventure to create a movie? I was tandemly volunteering while I was making the film. So I would go back and forth from Tokyo, and I'd spend a couple weeks up there. Then I'd come back maybe for about a week and then go back, and I was simultaneously interviewing people while doing the volunteer work. So you just kept the camera in your hip pocket, and when somebody had something interesting to say, you whipped it out and took an interview? I asked if they wanted to do it first. I found it took a long time for people to get to their true feeling about something. So sometimes I, the interview would be like an hour, but the good part would always be at the end. So I, I kind of learned quickly that I had to kind of hang on and wait and kind of wade through a lot of things. But what they were really, you know, wanted to say was, was usually at the end. So you were interviewing people who you were working with as volunteers. There was already a level of trust there because you were part of the community. You knew a little bit of Japanese. At what point did you stop doing that work and concentrate perhaps fully on the documentary as opposed to doing the volunteer work? I was volunteering um, with a group called Peace Boat in Ishinomaki, and I injured my back and actually my foot also. So I decided that I would focus a little bit more on the movie because I thought that was probably the most important thing that I could do as a volunteer. I started just um, driving instead. Driving as a volunteer for where these people had to go? Driving supplies. Tell me about your experience at the September 19th six-month rally after this whole disaster began. One day I heard there was going to be this huge protest, and they said 50,000 people were going to come and oppose nuclear power in Japan. I kind of was bewildered, because I, I couldn't imagine 50,000 Japanese people getting together to oppose anything, just from living there. 
But I did make a note to go there on September 19th. And when I got there, yeah, 50,000 people turned out. And they said farewell to nuclear power and protect our children. So you actually were in Japan for the period of time from the people not really being attuned to having a political response to the point where the movement that is continuing these days for the shutdown of the UI reactors, uh, now that they've gone back online, all of that started back when you were there and you were able to follow it through to this milestone demonstration. Yes. Um, I actually captured the smaller demonstrations in the beginning, and you can see, actually, in the film, the demonstrations grow into this full-fledged 50,000-person protest, which has now you know, become sort of like almost like going to be a revolution in Japan, hopefully. What brought you back to the United States? What made you decide that it was time to come back? I decided it was time to come back when I had a lot of concerns about the food. I mean, we initially, of course, knew that there was going to be problems, but I started to get radiophobia really bad about the food because um, they were still selling food from Fukushima in the supermarket. And I just said, I can't do this anymore. I need to take production elsewhere. At what point did you come back to the States? I came back early December of 2011. And what has been the journey of the footage that you took to its creation into the film that you've made? I came back to the country with a three-month rough cut, and I had to launch um, a Kickstarter campaign, if you don't know what that is, kickstarter.com, to raise the money for the post-production for the movie to get it into a 90-minute feature documentary. And how did that go? It was funded, um, $5,000, and actually, even after it ended, we ended up getting an extra $1,000 and a spot to show the movie in Canada with a Fukushima conference on the anniversary date, uh, March 11th, 2012. What was the response like when you showed it at this conference? A lot of people were shocked at what they saw. In what way shocked? What were they shocked about? They had no idea that any of that was going on. They... You know, they said, well, none of this has been on the news, it's been out of the media. We had no idea that people felt this way, these situations were going on at all. So, Chris, what was it like when you finally, for the first time, got to show the film in front of an audience? I had an overwhelming response from the Canadian media. I was featured on eight different outlets, including CBC Radio and CBC Television. The screening was packed to capacity. Everybody was shocked to some degree at what they saw. They didn't actually know all that was going on there because the media wasn't really reporting it over here. So in other words, what you provide in this film, 311 Surviving Japan, is a bridge between what was actually happening there in a period of time in the first six months, going to starting just a few weeks after the tsunami and earthquake took place, all the way through to this first major demonstration. Information that we, of course, here, unless we were on YouTube and on Facebook, did not know anything about. Since that first screening, what has been happening with the film? After the first screening, it was a rough cut, so we had to raise more money to get it to the final cut. From the Kickstarters, I've had people... That's how we got the first screening. Um, So we had a second screening that just happened in Seattle. That one um, got another overwhelming response. It was on the local news, too, finally, the, um, the story about the movie. And I was really glad that they included the segment about Fukushima because I really wanted to get that back into the mass media. And that's part of the reason I made this movie is because people 
need to pay attention to what's going on. So you're down here in Los Angeles right now, and you said that you were planning to stay here for a while. What are the steps you're taking to launch the film, and what do you hope, what do you envision as the future for this film? My hope is that it helps people first understand the disaster a lot more and that it's a serious, serious event. I mean, this is a potential end-of-the-world event that people are not really taking seriously at all. After that, I want to use any funds from that to help with radiation awareness projects in Japan and even here because a lot of people here aren't really aware that the radiation travels and it traveled across over to the west coast and from there across the west of the country and through rainouts we have no idea where the pockets of the hot spot pockets are around the country so chris if you have a dream of what this film can accomplish where it can go who it can touch what it can achieve in the world What would that look like? We cannot sustain life on this planet if we continue to poison it. At what point do we decide that our health is more important than the economy? You know, we invented the economy, we can change that. Our health and our natural resources, though, we can't replace. And a greater awareness of that really, really, really needs to come about. And I think now is the time, and this incident is one that definitely we could learn that from. And your film is, of course, a major piece in the education of people in a medium that they are familiar with and that makes it easy for them to get the information in a condensed form. If people want to support you in the work that you're doing, where can they go to learn more about you and about the film, and how might they be able to help you? They can go to www.311survivingjapan.com. And those are the numbers 311. Yes. So number is 311survivingjapan.com. Right now, um, we are looking to launch the film and get it out there as big as possible. What would help you do that? Distribution and marketing. So if anybody is in the distribution or marketing field and are able to help Chris in any way, even if it's just as an information flow or to network him into others, go to www.311survivingjapan.com. Chris Nolan, thank you so much for all your efforts on our behalf. Thank you. Now on to the holistic healing radiation protection tip of the week. Peppermint holds promise as a potent herb against cancer and the effects of radiation. According to a study in 2010, liquid extracts of peppermint were shown to protect the gastrointestinal and homeopoietic meaning the process of the formation and development of various types of blood cells, the homeopoietic Oh, the blood-making system. It protects these two systems of the body from radiation. The healing properties in the extract are found to be metal chelating, anti-mutagenic, meaning reduces the rate of mutation, antioxidant, and anti-inflammatory. Additionally, DNA repair processes are enhanced with mint. Tumors of the pancreas and liver are particularly vulnerable to the bioactive components of peppermint, Cancers of the skin, lung, and colon are also inhibited by this herb. So always use fresh mint or a high-quality mint extract that comes from the holistic marketplace. You can use fresh mint as tea, as a flavoring in all kinds of cooking, both savory and desserts. You can use aromatherapy and even dab a little bit on as perfume. As far as I'm concerned, I'll have mine in a mint julep. 
For the activist opportunity, a reminder that the Coalition Against Nukes is sponsoring a rally for a nuclear-free future in Washington, D.C. this December, specifically September 20th through 22nd. You can learn all about it on Facebook. Just put in Coalition Against Nukes as your search term and join the thousands who have already joined and trust that site for information about how you can join into the festivities. It's going to be big. In the meantime, if anyone has frequent flyer miles, you can contribute to Nuclear Hot Seat. I would appreciate it because that will help get me there so I can provide you with all of the news up close and personal. For a final thought, this is about languaging and how it is used against us. So much of what I hear about officials in Japan keeping information from people, the excuse that they use, is that they want to spare people from experiencing too much anxiety. Yet in truth, anxiety is created from not knowing, from not being able to trust authorities, from not having the necessary information with which to make informed choices in a difficult situation. Anxiety has now become one of the nuclear industry's spin words, alongside their other favorites, including significant, as in, it is not a significant radiation release, when, as we've just heard, every radiation release, every radiation exposure is significant and impacts health. Another favorite word that the nukers use is immediate, as in, there is no immediate danger, which, while it may be technically correct, is not ultimately correct. Let me explain. The dangers from exposure to low-level radiation are long-term and may take years, if not decades, to show up. That was my case after Three Mile Island. It took 20 to 30 years for my adrenal problems to actually expose themselves. So, yes, there's probably no immediate danger. You're not going to keel over from exposure to low-level doses of radiation. But that doesn't mean that there's no danger. That does not mean that there is not ultimate danger. There is. So watch out for those words, significant, immediate, and anxiety. When you hear those words coming from government or corporate officials dealing with nuclear issues, you can bet the farm that they're lying. And keep in mind that according to psychological and psychiatric sources with whom I've consulted, the best way out of significant, immediate nuclear anxiety is loud, angry activism. I invite you to join me and all the rest of us. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, July 17, 2012. You can find us posted on NuclearHotSeat.com. Just click on the blog button and you'll get all of the podcasts right there. You can also get the notifications on Facebook, the Nuclear Hot Seat pages, and on iTunes Podcasts, where you can subscribe for free. Feel free to share any of these links and forward the download to anyone you care about. This is a free podcast. I just want to help get the information out. If you have thoughts on how to improve Nuclear Hot Seat, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, do not go back to sleep. Be safe, be well, and I hope I'll be speaking with you again next week.